Welcome to Ticket to Fly, bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and we're happy to have you back for season two of Ticket to Fly with our debut episode. In this episode, we kick it off with one of the biggest names in U.S. ski jumping, Jeff Hastings. He grew up in Olympic-rich Norwich, Vermont in the 70s and 80s, going on to record America's best Olympic ski jumping result since 1924, when he finished fourth in Sarajevo at the 1984 Olympic Winter Games. I'm joined today by Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves, who will guide you through the interviews again this season. And Peter, it was great to open our second season of Ticket to Fly with Jeff Hastings, a remarkable athlete in his time who came from an amazing hotbed of Olympic talent in Norwich, Vermont. That's right. So many Olympians came out of there in many ski disciplines. Uh, It's really quite an extraordinary small Vermont town. And I can't imagine... uh, a better person to kick it off with, Tom, than uh, Jeff Hastings. He is uh, he he has so much depth in the sport at so many levels. Uh, of course, uh, great Olympic performances, but he's a guy that continues to be very relevant today preferring a lot of his work, Tom, to be behind the scenes. Peter, it's been 38 years since Jeff Hastings dabbled with the Olympic medals podium in Sarajevo, and uh, he shared some really great memories with us. Yeah, he really did. Uh, And, you know, uh, fourth place is an interesting spot to be in an an Olympic Games. Of course, uh, many people revel in the fact, and and I think he is very pleased with what he did. But we also uh, talked about uh, the aspect of what might have been. He was so very close to that bronze medal that uh, Pavel Ploch took uh, from the Czech Republic then. So it's a very interesting story. I love how it plays out. Finally, and what I've always liked about Jeff is how he continues to give back to the sport. You touched on this earlier, but he still today is a, a really important part of the backbone of the sport in America. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. Um, You know, the story project every December, uh, a story every day. It's all a fundraising effort for USA Nordic. He helps kids get equipment, which is very hard to source in the United States. He'll tell you that interesting story and much more. Uh, He is a guy that uh, is still involved in a very deep way. Well, Peter, we look forward to a whole season full of great episodes on Ticket to Fly, the international ski jumping and Nordic combined podcast. And now let's get to the interview as Ticket to Fly host Peter Graves welcomes ski jumping legend Jeff Hastings. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to Ticket to Fly, the Nordic news magazine of the air on for another season. And we're glad to have you with us. Our special guest as we kick off this Olympic season is Jeff Hastings, not far away from me in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, Jeff, a longtime U.S. ski team member. Uh, We'll talk about his results in Sarajevo, and we'll cover a lot of topics for this 62-year-old flyer who needs uh, probably very little introduction. Jeff went to... uh, Williams College, uh, followed it up with a MBA at Tuck at Dartmouth, uh, four-time national champion, 
longtime television analyst and uh, one of the great helpers of ski jumping behind the scenes. So, Jeff, welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks very much, Peter. Good to, good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. Uh, so um, you grew up uh, in Norwich, Vermont, born in Idaho, but uh, uh, Sports Illustrated named you among the 50 greatest sports figures to come from Vermont. That's quite an honor. And I guess I want to start there. Um, you are in um, some wonderful company. And uh, not too long ago, um, there was an interesting article in the New York Times talking about the Norwich area. And uh, and I'll say Greater Hanover as well, though um, I'm taking the liberty in doing so. But they really worked in synchronicity with the Ford Sierra Club. How'd you get into jumping, Jeff? You know, I think it's uh, very much a factor of having Dartmouth College next door. Dartmouth has such a great outdoor history in general and specifically ski history. And so <clears throat> you don't know it when you're five, six, seven, eight years old that all these programs have basically evolved because there were a lot of great skiers coming through town from a from early on, from early, early onset. And so the programs were there and, and uh, it's kind of what everybody did. I have very fond memories of Wednesdays in Norwich, school was let out early to go to Mrs. Booth's field, <clears throat> which was this side hill field. And everybody brought their skis to school that day with them when they came on the bus or um, their parents dropped them off and they lined up outside this brick uh, quintessential New England school building. And uh, 2.15, the bell would ring and we'd all grab our skis and head out to Mrs. Booth's field. So there was kind of no option um, growing up. Well, that's cool. And your younger brother, Chris, uh, was uh, at your side, I am certain. He was an Olympic jumper in Calgary, 1988. And then, of course, you, you had the Holland brothers, uh, I suspect, with you. It must have been the milieu of that must have been really quite fascinating. Yeah. And, and so I was talking previously about um, skiing in general, and then there was a ski jump in town, too. And uh, the Hastings family, my brother Brad and brother Chris, who went on to the 88 Olympics, as you pointed out, and uh, the Hollands <clears throat> all got involved. Uh, you know, there was Walter Monquest before me, just up the road in Post Mills, and, and Felix McGrath, an alpine skier from town, and Timmy Tatro did Nordic Combined. So there was a bunch of um, high-quality uh, Olympic-caliber skiers um, of all different disciplines that came out of the Norwich area. You know... Uh I, I'm sure I'm unique. I'm finding that out as I age. But looking back, I remember uh, when I was a little kid, um, you know, I didn't have posters of Mickey Mantle or Roger Maris or that sort of thing. I had like Bjorn Workula, uh, Ole Elifsetter, uh, and uh, Ode Martinson, two great skier, cross-country skiers uh, from Norway. And uh, Workula, of course, uh, uh, the uh, amazing champion of the sixties. Did you start, uh, feeling jumping with something special in your soul? Did you, did you have a hero maybe Jeff that you looked up to at that point that, that helped carve the way? There, there really was, were no ski jumping heroes back then. Um, and, you know, it goes back to Al Merrill in some ways, but even more so to a farm boy growing up in Grantham, New Hampshire, my dad, who was on the Lebanon high school ski team. <clears throat> and Al Merrill was the coach then, the Silver Fox, uh, you know, 
world-renowned Al Merrill, um, started as a physics teacher at Lebanon High School. And my dad was on the ski team. And uh, you skied four events because they had one coach and he would do cross country one day, jumping the next and alpine the next. And so he wasn't a great jumper himself. He was a great skier, but not a great jumper. But my brothers and I, we lived on a side hill in the woods and we would ski through the trees and make these jumps any chance we could. And we would just jump, 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 jump. And my dad saw that and said, you know, there's there's an outlet for this. It's called ski jumping. And Ford Sayre had the program. And so you know, but for Al Merrill taking in a farm kid from Grantham, New Hampshire and throwing jumping skis on him and throwing him off 20, 30, 40, 50 meters back in high school. Um, I don't think my brothers and I would have known that we could have gotten into ski jumping. So you did four events like many kids did in that era. At, at what time did you say, you know, uh, I'm going to focus on ski jumping? Well, when they didn't have a water stop at the 50 meter mark in the cross country race, I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> my, my, I'd go out on these cross country because they were all Nordic combined, right? And, and I would look really good leaving the, the stadium. It wasn't a stadium, but leaving the starting line. I had great form and I would make it to the woods and then I would collapse. And uh, people would say, well, geez, he just, he was right behind that guy going into the woods. And I would be walking in the woods because I felt so miserable. Um, so, so cross country was not an option for me. Alpine was sort of the same thing. Um, I would be really good in the first gate, a little late on the second gate, a little later on the third gate. And by the fifth gate, I had spun out because I had no way to pace. I couldn't find the, to, any way to pace myself to stay in a course. But mm. um, ski jumping, as hard as you wanted to get, it wasn't that hard. Once you got the top, you just rode down as hard as you wanted to jump. It would give you more air. And I love that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and, and, and I love your comment about Al Merrill uh, because... Uh, I can't think of many others that probably introduced more people to skiing and, and uh, especially Nordic skiing. Um, he was a really, really amazing man. He was. And, I, and I, it's just amazing to me the little things that have such ripple effects. And not that ski, an Olympic ski jumper is that big a deal, but for Al Merrill, but for my dad, there, there wouldn't be any Hastings jumping, and which means there would be no Hollands jumping because the way the Hollands got into it is my dad and I stopped by Mike Hollands' house some December evening in 1960, fill in the blank, and threw some jumping skis on the floor and said, Mike, I think you ought to try this. And he'd never heard of it or tried it before. And that year he started and, and he wasn't that great at first, actually, but he, he was bitten by the same bug and he could not let it go. And obviously world record holder, um, distance holder in Planitza in 85. So and a multi-time Olympian World Cup winner. But, you know, it was all shaped by, uh, you know, Al Merrill, uh, Paul Hastings from back in the day. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So knowing you uh, pretty well um, for a, a long period of time, I know that you're a good athlete. You move well. You play golf well. Uh, um water ski. Um, uh, did you feel like you had anything special then, uh, at all, Jeff, or, or were you just finding your way a little bit by sort of bouncing off walls? Well, I think, I think passion is worth so much. You know, I was okay at ski jumping, but I had a passion for it. And I, I think too, the reality is, is that the statistics are pretty good for ski jumping, right? If you're passionate about ski jumping, you're good at it. 
you know, there's maybe 200 people in the U.S. who can jump a 70 a K 90 meter hill, maybe, you know, so the odds, you know, versus golf, if you're good at golf, you got whatever, 3 million people ahead of you that have a handicap and you good luck making it to the masters. But it's relatively a, a steep learning curve and a, and a quick trip to get to the, the top ranks. And then if you can hold your own there, I mean, that's another thing. It's easy to get to the top of the U.S. just in some degree, or it used to be in my day. And um, but then you do have to compete internationally. But even internationally, compared to something like running or or football, soccer, you know, it's just it's a it's a so what I'm trying to say, I guess, is that it's exciting when you see opportunity in front of you and you keep progressing, you know, and, and there's more opportunity and all of a sudden you're, you're 19, you're, you're 17 years old and you're in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. You know, that, that was my first plane trip, you know, going to Steamboat Springs, Springs, Colorado. And, and then you're 21 years old and you're in Finland or Switzerland. It's, it's a, it's a, it was been a great ride. And so basically I think you're, you're saying to synthesize that um, this opened up, uh, a world to you that you might not have seen otherwise. And, and with that, that's kind of a message that you've had. Um, you know, you were very early on uh, one of the founders of USA SJ, which uh, morphed into USA Nordic. And that's been kind of a message that you've given an inspirational one to a, a, a lot of the young kids out there through so many things that you do, the story project and, and uh, the way you talk to people. Um, so I know you really feel that in your DNA, that for kids, there's a lot of opportunity out there. I think there's a lot of opportunity and I think there's a lot of value in small, tight-knit communities. And that's what ski jumping, I think, is. is it's, and Nordic Combined um, uh, fits right in there too. Um, and, and I think that that, you know, that that's a weakness of ski jumping is that it's so small, but I also think it's, it's one of its great strengths is that if you want to get Kevin Bickner on the phone tomorrow and ask him what he thinks about your, your in-run or your takeoff, you will get Kevin Bickner on the phone because he's a part of a small community a fraternity, a sorority, whatever you want to call it. And, and we care about each other because it's a weird, odd passion that, uh, that, that, that that links you that, that connects yeah. us. You know, uh, so many years I would be at Lake Placid in the summer and people would come up and they would say, uh, wow, I would never do that off the big hill or the normal hill, whatever. Um, and, uh, but they sometimes fail to realize that you start on little hills and work up, uh, uh in a, in a progressive kind of thing. And Jeff, I'm sort of curious, like, you know, what were any of the hills that you jumped in this progression? Do you remember back and say, "Oh my goodness, um, this is really big"? Yeah, ski flying. You know, so there are I don't know five, six, seven, six. I guess ski flying hills around the world, and um, they are they are big. And you back in my day again, I, I finished skiing in '84. You would get to ski fly once a year. And so you didn't, now they do it two or three times a year. And so uh, it was a big deal. And the, the hills, I sound like um, Art Devlin here the, in the old days, talking about the old days, but the hills were not as well groomed as they are now. And it was a challenge and it was scary as heck. And um, uh, <clears throat> every time I ski flew, I would 
I would get to the bottom of the jump and I'd go, all right, I'd, having just had a jump and not done what I wanted to do on the takeoff, saying, all right, I got this now. This time I got it. This time I got it. I'd go up to the top. I'd get into the tracks and I'd be saying, you got it, you got it, stay forward, stay forward, stay forward. And you just go faster, 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 faster. And you're like going, geez, I'm crowbars. I cannot believe how freaking fast I'm going. And then you get to the takeoff, you go, not, not, not this time, not this time, not, not this time. And you back off a little bit and you go, then you get out in the air and everything's okay. And it says, but it's too late. And you're like, you know, um, <laughs> I, I should have, I needed to do it that time. So didn't get many shots at that. But most, you know, mostly what you do is you get to a jump and you ski it enough, a size jump, and that you feel comfortable on it. And uh, you you master it to some degree. Mm, interesting, yeah. Ski flying—that's that's super ski jumping, of course. Um, and uh, from being around that a little bit, uh, doing television, I always sensed that the uh, environment at the top was different than uh, just regular ski jumping. It was quieter, more introspective people thinking more it was just a different vibe jeff it, it certainly was for me <clears throat> back then and i think that the vibe at the top of any jump is really something cool um just touching on that while we're there and that is that you've got all of these competitors in the same place trying to do the same thing and they're being measured against each other, but they're really being measured against themselves and, and the jump that, that lies in front of them. Every jump has its own personality. It favors different techniques a little bit or another, and you have to adjust a little bit. But again, I talk about community, the, the, the sense of community at the top of the Olympic, of the Olympic ski jump um, or any World Cup, it, it, at least in my day, it was still tangible. And there our language differences and we're from all different backgrounds, but it's, it's very, it's palatable and it's something I really miss um, being at the top of, uh, you know, of a ski jump with um, other guys about to do it, doing it seriously and having a respect for them and, and knowing that they had a respect for me. Uh, Jeff, you uh, went to Williams college in uh, Massachusetts in the Berkshires. Uh, you jumped there. Um, the uh, group, jumping in college continues to be very close, but NCAA, of course, dropped jumping. I don't know if it was 80 or 83, but it was in that area. And, you know, we haven't talked about that much, but that was a very big blow, wasn't it? It was a big blow. And at the time I felt quite judgmental about it, but it, it was, it's what had to happen. You look at NCAA skiing now, and it is so rich. You you announce the championships. You see it firsthand, I know. But um, it is so rich. It is so diverse. There's so many different uh, colleges competing from around the U.S. And <clears throat> with ski jumping, the facilities are so few. And the ski jumpers graduating from a senior high school class in any given year are, are non-existent. And so you had teams who, if they were going to win an NCAA championship, needed to have three or four ski jumpers. There were no ski jumpers needed to have ski jumps. There were no jumps, you know, except for a little bit in New England and, and some of the Western schools. So anybody that wasn't within range of a ski jump had no chance. And even then, 80% of them had to bring in foreigners to, to field a team because there weren't enough ski jumpers being produced. So it when it it was the right thing to do for sure for NCAA skiing, it was a great move. It it made ski jumping have to, and we're still trying to come to terms with this, figure out who we are for whom and, and how we 
how we deliver for that potential athlete. And I, I think it is, there is a great, a great opportunity there for reasons I said earlier, as far as how, how quickly you can get to a quite a high level and, and really enjoy some, some of the benefits of being a, a top level athlete. Um, but there are struggles for sure. There's still very few facilities and a lot of competition more and more for kids time, including Xbox and whatnot in, in the couch and TV. Yeah. And a lot of those jumps, uh, a lot of the colleges that had jumps, they came down. I, I think specifically of, uh, here in the Hanover area, uh, and, uh, Middlebury, for example, they were two bastions of, uh, ski jumping. Uh, but you had the benefit of jumping. Williams had a, a small jump, I think, up on, I don't know if it was Route 2 in Florida, Mass, or up that way somewhere. Berlin Mountain, yep. Yeah, there you, okay, there you go. And um, during that time, you blossomed, and um, you made the U.S. ski team. And um, you go to Sarajevo, making the 84 Olympics. Um, and the story is is powerful to me. Um, uh, you place just behind Pavel Ploch of then Czechoslovakia, uh, 0.2 points out of the medals, Jeff, uh, finishing fourth. Um, an extraordinary finish, to be sure. Um, tell me a little bit about that day particularly and and what the comments of mine may evoke. Okay. Well, first of all, I love embellishing history because at this rate, I should have the bronze medal by about 2028. Um, I think, I think it was over a point. I know it was over a point. I think it was like 1.4, 1.7. I think it was less than two points, but it was not 0.2 points. I think your fact checker um, may need to go back on that one. Wikipedia, uh, bud. Wikipedia. Okay. Well, that's good. See, then, it, it, then, then I know it's true. And then pretty soon it'll be a bronze medal. No. So, the, uh, the, the Large Hill event was the second event. There were only two events then, no team events. I'd come in ninth on the normal hill earlier and had been training quite well. It was kind of maybe maybe in the hunt for a medal, you know, one of those long shots. Um, and it was pretty tight. There, there was Matty Nukinen and Jens Weisslag who were head and shoulders ahead of the rest of the field. Weisslag, an East German, and Matty from, from Finland. So it was really, there was, there was one medal up for grabs unless one of them fell or broke a leg. And, uh, and I hadn't been training as well on the large hill. And I think basically that's one thing that helped me in a way, because I, I wouldn't say I choked on the normal hill, but I was, I was so nervous. You know, we jumped, it was the same competition as any world cup, all, all the same people. In fact, it's much in some ways easier because they only allowed four Austrians into the Olympics instead of eight that could have beat me on any given day. Right. So I, at least there are only four Austrians to kick my butt. Yeah. And then, so on the large hill, you know, you, the pressure is kind of off because you haven't, you, you don't have as much a chance. And I know I was feeling much more relaxed and the jump I had was one that I was, that, that was given the conditions really quite good. My second jump I'm talking about now. And so, um, the, the memories it evokes is just how fortunate I was to, to have a competition where I at least had one jump that was uh, representative of what I thought I could do. And that wound me up in fourth place. And Pavel Plotch, I was in, you know, Pavel Plotch was not a contender per se either, right? He came down and had a great second jump too and moved ahead of me. And uh, 
he's done a lot. He did a lot more after that. He, he, was, he was a great talent. I, our uh, magnificent producer uh, writes me and says a margin of 1.7 points. That, that, that may be official. I think that um, might be true. Yeah. <laughs> but, I uh, point two though. It's moving in the right direction. So Jeff, um, did you find at that point, um, uh, you know, Art Devlin, I think was still commenting then, or maybe it was Jay. I'm not sure. Jay yeah. yeah. Jay, yeah. I guess. Did you feel any pressure from ABC or pre-event interviews that seemed to, uh, as they often do, uh, seem to, uh, put you in a spot that, um, uh, was, was anxiety provoking kind of at all? Did that happen? I brought enough of my own anxiety for sure. I wanted to perform, you know, I, I was not a professional athlete, but I was, I had graduated in 81 and was taking some time to do this while my friends at the time, you know, it all seemed like my friends are off and running and they're doing their thing. And I'm, I'm trying to pursue this jumping thing. And, and what I've been doing for the last three years is now going to be on show more for my family and friends than for somebody from Dubuque, um, you know, sitting at home watching, who doesn't know me from a hole in the wall. So I was nervous anyway. Um, but it is what I loved about it, though, um, that definitely added to the nerves. It's just how once every four years um, somebody cares, you know, and, and we you would ski jump to great crowds in, in Germany and Austria and Norway. So I knew people cared. But in the U.S., they don't know about it. It's not that they wouldn't care if they didn't know about it, but they don't really know about it. And so it was fun to have people to be in The New York Times, to um, have people understand what I was doing who, who hadn't you know, knowing exactly what I was up to. So that, that was just, I appreciated the press for sure. I, I didn't, I put enough pressure on myself that that didn't really add anything. I would say. Uh, uh, I don't know. Was Kathy, your wife there or your parents, did they come? Yeah, everybody came. It was a wonderful scene. Kath, Kathy actually got a job. Um, she was a runner um, for ABC. So Keith Jackson was in the booth. I mean, mm. a, a great, a great announcer. Hup to the day. Mostly a college football. Yeah. And Kathy was getting, he and Jay Rand coffee and results sheets and whatever they needed to keep the wheels on that bus. And so she was right there. And my parents were in the field watching and so were the Hollands. And it was a, just a wonderful crowd. Yeah. It was, a, you know, the, the world was a safer place then. And it just, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it, it, you know, Sarajevo was quite foreign, not a ski town at all. You know, these, they, they really didn't know what they were doing in many ways, um, putting on a ski jumping event, but that was Yugoslavia then and Northern Yugoslavia, which is now Slovenia did have a lot of people who knew what to do and they had come down to help run things and, and, uh, keep things under control. So it was, it was a great event and a, you know, a great scene. I don't want to disrupt our, our great flow here, but I want to throw this question in uh, because it was apropos and then we'll get back to uh, my agenda. But um, you mentioned Matty Nukinen. Uh What made him so good? He was so dominant. Yeah. He, he, he was a savant. <clears throat> he was a, a, a ski jumping savant and you would watch him on video and what he did was nothing spectacular, but it just didn't matter. He had a sense, he had a, he had a gift. And, um, 
you know, as with many people who have amazing gifts, they also have some amazing deficiencies or amazing is too strong a word, but they have some deficiencies. And that's the sad part for me, for Maddie, is that um, in the end, it, it didn't work out well for him. He had whatever, eight years of glory and <clears throat> 22 years of misery that followed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was certainly a, an extraordinary talent. Well, you defeated him and and everybody else in Lake Placid with your World Cup win. I I was covering that for ESPN, which was pretty new at the time. Uh, it was a live-to-tape show, I think. Uh, and um, there you were on top of the world, Jeff. Got to interview you then and get to know you there. Um, how do you rate that in your career? I, I don't mean to sound kind of pandering because it's fantastic, but how do you hold that one World Cup win? I'm really happy to have had it. Um, you know, Mike Holland has one win too, and his was in Bishopshofen, Austria, and mm-hmm. that's a lot harder win over in Austria than it is in uh, your home hometown of or home area of Lake Placid. So, I I really thrilled to have won, um, but recognize too that it's it's there's no not an asterisk per se, but it's different skiing in your home hill, in your home, you know, in front of the home crowd. And, you know, <clears throat> the Austrians don't bring 12 people to, uh, to Lake Placid like they do to Bishop Chauvin, you know, so it's, it's not as hard a field as the international field, but it was a world cup victory. I'm not taking anything away from it and, uh, fond memories of it. And, uh, yeah, really feel thrilled to have, um, come through the sport at a time when, you could still be a little bit of just a normal guy and have a normal, I mean, I worked hard and I trained and stuff, but um, I didn't have to watch my weight the way guys have to these days. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't have to focus 365 days a year the way these guys do now, if they're going to be competitive. Along the way, you were a four-time national champion, if my researcher is correct uh, on that. What uh, made you decide to leave the sport in 84, Jeff? Um, it, it, again, so I, I, I talked earlier a bit how, you know, friends from college that were moving on and, and getting quote unquote on with their lives. And it was, you know, now athletes stay with what were amateur sports into their 30s and some even into their 40s. Um, and, and the guys that I retired, that the, the sort of the, the next class behind me after I retired, those were the first generation that went on to ski until they were 30, 32, 35. It, it was still very much an amateur sport, you know, like back in the day. And so giving myself three years after graduating from college seemed like an enormous gift already. And uh, I got to 84 and I had a good year. I think I was fourth in overall World Cup. I'd won that World Cup in Lake Placid. I had some other top three events. And, and the program was so supercharged with Greg uh, Winsberg coaching at, at the helm and a lot of good skiers around me. And I was having a good time and, and people were saying, you need to stay, you need to stay, you need to stay. And I had been so long focused on getting to 84 and doing well there. And it's not coming in fourth sounds like, oh, wow, too bad you came in fourth. But for me, that was pretty darn good. And it wasn't like I thought that if I stayed around another four years, I'd win a medal. I sort of feel like I got pretty lucky hitting fourth this time. And, and I, I would be surprised if I do better than if I stay around for another four years. But I still was convinced to stay around for one more year. Um, and I trained that summer 
And my heart was just not in it. But I thought to myself, well, I'm a, I'm a professional. I know I'll, I'll, I'll come around. I'll come around. Long story short, we went over to Sarajevo, ironically, for a training camp in the fall. And I got to the top of the jump and I just was like, my head is not in this game. I, you know, I've been training all, all summer, but, and I went off the jump and it just wasn't there. And I, I got on the walkie talkie at the bottom, you know, come whatever, three, 4,000 miles to Sarajevo for a training camp for two weeks. And the first jump I'm on the phone to Greg Winsberger, the head coach saying, you know, I'm, I'm done. I, this is, I'm, I, I'm not going to do this. And, uh, anyway, that was, that was the end of it. So, and then I was ready to move on. I didn't know what else I wanted to do, but I knew that ski jumping wasn't going to support me and I better figure it out. And, and in your era, as well as you did, I I'm assuming virtually no money at all, right? No, there was virtually no money and, it, and there were win premiums where if you came in like top five, you might get a hundred bucks and, but it was always tough to collect on them. And actually, after the 84 <laughs> season, I, Kath and I, we took a U.S. ski team Subaru that they were kind enough to let me have. And I drove it down. We drove it down Italy, put it on a boat, went to Greece, drove it around Greece. And we were running out of money. But I thought, no problem, because I have some wind premiums to pick up from Kanizel. And I'll just pick those on the way back up. And that'll get us a hotel room and dinner. And we can get the heck out of Dodge here. And I... And you remember this guy's name. What was Kurt? What was his Kurt name? Kurt Motz. Kurt Motz from yeah. Kneisel. He was not happy to see me in yeah. Kuhstein or wherever. Kuhstein, yeah. yeah, that's right. I showed up and I said, hey, Kurt, how about a few euros for your pal here or, or Deutschmarks <laughs> or whatever? Because yeah, are you good for him? And and he, 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 was, he had no money for me whatsoever. And I don't think I ever did end up seeing any win premiums, but... Yeah, I don't know, man. Kath and I must have just had bread and water for the rest of the trip until we got the the ticket home. But so you're right; it was an amateur effort, and even the money that you were semi promised didn't seem to want to show up. Yeah, yeah that's that's so interesting. Yeah. And the other thing that is very evident to me uh, is that, I mean, uh, you you have a good philosophy of life and living and. Uh, you know, I could see somebody being uh, tortured by fourth place. Oh, I, you know, never getting over it. I, I just couldn't. Uh, uh, I, I was so close. Blah 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 blah. We know those kind of people, but you've you processed this really well. And, and in fact, fourth place is great. It's freaking fantastic. <laughs> it's like you're trying to convince me, Peter. No, I'm not. I know you know. <laughs> it is what it is, right? You know, you can't. It's just never going to change. And I, yeah. You, it is if you see the glass half full or half empty. I I, I just feel so fortunate to have gotten what I've gotten, and and it, you know I don't think a bronze medal was gonna or you know, the gold and silver were gone. A bronze medal I don't think would have changed my life much. So anyway, that's cool. That's yeah. cool. And um, after that, um, you had a, a short stint as a U.S. Nordic Combined Team coach uh, up in Calgary. Uh, I, I remember seeing you up there and um calgary i believe was also your debut as a tv announcer is that right jeff for the olympics yeah i've done, done a few things before but yeah for the olympics yeah and what was that like being thrown into that uh it was it was exciting to be that person um i loved having a seat at the table whether it was being as a coach or as a uh, 
as an announcer, you know, getting that credential, getting behind the scenes, getting to hear what's really going on. Um, I think I'm forever spoiled. I, I don't think I would ever go to an Olympics and sit in the stands and watch. It, it just, it's so much yeah. cooler being, getting the results the minute they're, they're coming out, seeing people and being able to talk to them. Um, so yeah, it, uh, it was nerve wracking. It was live TV in 88. Again, I was with Chris Shankle, another mm. all time great. I know I'm throwing out names that nobody is going to recognize. No, but I do. Yeah, yeah, I know you do. And, and, you know, as I think you might've been the one that said you would listen to Chris Shankle read a phone book. He had such a, he was a smoker. He just had this beautiful gravelly voice and, and, um, lovely just delivery as well. So anyway, I got to work with some really exciting pe people. Jim Palmer was an announcer for ABC mm. that I worked with. Um, Phil Leggett, the, the, yeah, I know, I know you know all these guys anyway, yeah. but you get to, um, you know, rub shoulders with some really interesting people and, and show them a little bit about your sport. And they're all fascinated by it. Matt Baskersian, you know, now is, uh, an MLB guy. He, he, he did ski jumping. Mike Breen, who used to be on Imus in the morning. And I think he's like, he's still in New York, mm -hmm. uh, doing well, guy. doing a lot yeah. of sports. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Anyway. And then, so. uh, Jeff, so, I mean, uh, you Alberville was CBS, and I think you worked with Liggett there. Then you went on to uh, NBC. And over the years, um, as NBC had the rights and still does, uh, NBC followed a lot of Rune Arledge's playbook. Uh, but even, I, I think, those last few Olympics you worked at, they were particularly glamorous, uh, but you never acted like a star. You never big timed anybody. I, I think you. Some people need television. How would I big time someone? What is well, that? Like? Okay, there's, there's, there again is your humbleness. But um, no. uh, what, what was it like being um, in the real big show with NBC those last few Olympic games? Uh I, I feel like I'm just being totally Pollyanna, Paula, Pollyanna here that everything is great, but it, it, it's a dream, right? You get to go and, but it, and it's stressful too. Like th this announcing is not something that comes naturally to me. And actually a, a, a quick, um, story out of Sochi, mm -hmm. it was live TV and, um, I'm giving, uh, I, 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 uh, some Austrian came down. And, uh, I'm, I, I knew he medaled in 2010, but I couldn't remember what medal. And so I said it was a silver medal and you know how it is with live TV, you say it and it's gone. Well, it turned out that that medal, he had actually won a bronze and the silver medal was Johnny Spillane's, which I heard from, from Mrs. Spillane. Actually, uh, Dick Ebersol heard it from Mrs. Spillane. And then I heard it from Dick Ebersol anyway. And so, um, there are challenges and there's anxiety around that too. Um, it, as you well know, you do so much more TV than me, but it's, uh, it's fun to, to promote the sport to, it was fun to promote the sport and to get there once every four years and, and see what's going to happen. And kind of brings us up to today, Jeff, and, um, uh, where we're at in ski jumping, uh, uh, the de facto federation is USA, uh, Nordic, um, uh, how, how do you sense things are going with ski jumping in America right yeah. now? So as far as USA Nordic goes, I'm very much, uh, behind the scenes. 
I'm, I'm not on the board or anything. <clears throat> I, I have three projects that I'm really, really passionate about. And you helped me with one, the virtual nationals, where we, you know, take kids who compete all year between 10 and 14 years old. And we have them, the, the winners in their divisions of real competitions submit a video of themselves. And then we judge, or we have celebrity judges and, and we make a TV show out of it. So these kids feel like they're really on TV and they get to see, they don't have to get on a plane to travel anywhere, but they get to meet virtually um, kids their age from across the country. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, the equipment program, there's no ski jumping equipment made in the US. Everything has to come from Europe. It's a pain in the butt for somebody to try and, and figure that on, out on their own. So we put together an equipment program to get stuff over. And then the story project that you referenced, which is just about to go into its 10th year. So for nine years, for every day in December, there's been one story that's come from the community um, that uh, goes out to the the ski jumping community December 1st through December 31st. So we've archived over 300 stories. And they're everything from Olympic stories to backyard jump stories. They're they're each of them precious in their own way. And as a as a collection, they, they just weave a beautiful tapestry. And so those are things, you know, I, I talked about community before. I just think the community is so important. And then if we can keep or, or keep the community strong or make it stronger, the results will come eventually. The talent will, will be drawn toward the sport and it'll work itself out. So it's not that I don't care about the top teams. It's just that I feel like there's enough people that do care about the top teams that they don't need me caring to. And my focus is very much at the grassroots where I feel like I might be able to, where I'm passionate and I, where I might be able to make a little bit of a difference in, in building community that's meant so much to me. Uh, once in a while, you see uh, certain countries be quite dominant. Uh, 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 there was, of course, the era of the Finns. There was uh, uh, more recently, um, uh, Poland has done very well as a country. Uh, and um, Norway uh, has done really well for a country. Do you think that um, we can reach a point where um, we have several people from the United States vying for medals? I do. Um, I don't. I do. I don't think it's imminent, um, but it's it's something I believe in. Um, but it's not something I care that much about either. To be honest with you, I, I feel like um, I have so many people. Not so many people, but it's not rare for people to come up to me and say, hey, I'm a ski jumper. Too. I was a ski jumper, too. And, and at whatever level, high school, and, and it, it, it really means something to them. And none of my kids ski jumped at, at, what, at an international level, say, but they all ski jumped. And they, I, think, I know they all carry it as a, as a part of what they did. So it's just, I think that, again, the community, the, the act of taking that risk of being by yourself, at the top of the ski jump and having to n- navigate your way down and see how far you can go is just a, a beautiful challenge, um, unlike any other in the world. And there are many great challenges in the world, not the only beautiful challenge in the world, but one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and I think there's, there's great value in that. And, and again, I think the results will come when, when we have enough people excited about it and we finally uh, create more momentum um, that, that I think starts with community. Um, I, I love your talking about that. And, uh, I remember the late Earl Murphy had t-shirts printed up that said ski jumpers are special people. I'm sure you remember it. Um, 
never really did that the essence of that um uh show clearer than um you had a party a weekend at your house a few years ago and here is people like Erling Ramslotten the, the great Norwegian who still works for the federation and people from all over the country that came and there were times for storytelling um some great stories some um uh, poignant stories um but uh, that was really, I, I dare say, that was a really powerful um, weekend, Jeff. And and not only um, do you deserve credit for sort of hosting that, but also um, uh, what came out of it, I think, was pretty beautiful. And and um, I think that speaks to what you're what you're talking about that sense of community. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It was it was a, a, a wonderful weekend and. And some people who were closer to the sport got connected, reconnected to some people that were a little bit farther away and got drawn in and, and certainly many fond memories. So we've covered a lot about your career for a long time. You've had a real day job at ProCut International. Um, and uh, tell me what ProCut does, Jeff. I know, but let the po- yeah. folks know. Uh, we make and sell a product that fixes brakes on cars. And uh, as I tell people, if you're still awake after hearing that intro, let's talk about something else. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, I love, and I love ProCut. I love working at ProCut. We've got a, a great product that um, really helps people. We, we're international, sell internationally. We've got um, 40 to 50 people that work together to do this and another 40 international distributors that are their own businesses, but sell our product and 60 or 70 domestic um, reps that are independent. So it's a, it's a big team. And, uh, it, what we do is, is pretty unique and, and pretty hard and it takes a certain passion. And so we've got a pretty passionate crew that I'm, I'm psyched to be a part of. Has it been nice in a way, Jeff, because with your intellect and your skill set, you could have probably worked at, at the, any federation you wanted to, I, th- I suspect, but was it, Given that your heart is so much in jumping, um, is it nice to have had a day job where you, you didn't think all day about jumping? Uh, you know, I think I could have been excited about a lot of different things, including working for a federation. But I do love the challenges of, of my job now where, you know, we're always trying to figure out <clears throat> what the customer wants and what we can do better and, and how we can make a better mousetrap and how we can sell that mousetrap better. And so, and I think there's obviously there's challenges with every, every job, but, but, you know, we make things around the world where I have to travel and check up and make sure things are going well. We sell things around the world where I need to challenge, where I need to travel and meet people. And so every day feels different. Um, and every day feels a challenge. And I think that's, that's certainly something that speaks volumes for me. If you look back at your career and your business life, what do you assess maybe is the greatest singular skill you brought to, to jumping TV and your career, Jeff? And be honest now. Be honest. <laughs> single greatest skill. I think the single greatest skill I have is pulling off uh, pigment-challenged hair as well as any individual in the world. 
and you've got a shock of white hair like I do, you need to know how to manage it from the hair product to how you comb it. And, and I've really, I think I've taken that to international heights. No, I'm sorry. I'm being, I'm being smug. I don't, that's a, that's a, a good question and a hard question. Um, I, I think, I, I think I, let me put it to you this way. I think that what I've learned maybe I knew it all along, but what I believe is that to, to make a good team, you have to, people have to feel like they're listened to, to, to do something important. You need a team. I don't think any individual does it by themselves. That's not rocket science. I know. And that, um, listening to people and engaging people, even though for me, I have a tendency to want to try and do it all by myself quickly and, and not, have to deal with the messiness of, of social challenges um, is, is the best way to get things done. And uh, a lot of people outside of the Hanover area uh, don't know, I suspect, that uh, you, you have for so many years been integral to the uh, running race for the uh, Children's Hospital at Dartmouth. And uh, I, uh, you are held in and you know this, uh, very high esteem, and uh, particularly uh, one year, the poster with the hair that you're talking about now. <laughs> I never you. forget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, well, it, and just so others know that, that Peter gives his services to announcing that every year, which makes it a whole different level of the event, which is wonderful. And I thank you for that, Peter. Oh, you're you're so welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. That that was uh, almost an hour of um, heartfelt discussion, and I really appreciate it. And I so appreciate what you've done, uh, you know, with USA Nordic, and um, you definitely put a tremendous effort behind all of it and uh, and building a community. So thank you, buddy. Thanks. It's, it's definitely given me much more than I've ever given to it. And that's, that's why I do it. I love it. Thanks, Peter. It's great talking to you. I appreciate you reaching out. Yeah. Well, it's great to talk to, uh, Jeff Hastings, uh, a good friend of mine. And, uh, for many of you, uh, a friend of yours. Well, that has been ticket to fly for this week. As we begin a new season, uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. We'll be talking to other, uh, great personalities in the sport. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Ticket to Fly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jeff Hastings. It's been wonderful. I'm Peter Graves. We'll talk again soon. So long.